like to uh, go ahead and begin here. Um, we're going to start with prayer, as we always do and should. We're going to ask uh, Brother Doug Smith, would you offer a prayer for our class today? Dear Lord, we ask that you would be with us here today as we study together to learn more of your will and your way for our lives. We pray, Lord, for this reunion, that you would bless, continue to bless it, that your spirit would continue to grow and strengthen and enlighten us, Lord. We thank you for your many blessings, and we ask this all in thy Son's most holy name, even our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Doug. Well, yesterday, we began our class uh, looking at section four, which is the main focus of our theme this week. And we focused on the first part of section four um, that's not necessarily in the daily themes yesterday in the sense that we looked at the um, beginning of what the marvelous work was and the importance of what was restored as part of the restoration yesterday. We talked about priesthood authority. We talked about the ordinances. We talked about the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. And we hit all of those things that were restored and why they had to be restored. And we talked about Joseph's experience in the grove yesterday, right, where he was told to join none of them, um, that their, their creeds were an abomination before. And we talked about why it was an abomination, right, because it could not, their creeds could not bring them back into the presence of God. So yesterday we focused on the reason for section four and it was given to Joseph Smith Sr., who would be the first patriarch of the church and presiding patriarch at that. And uh, today I wanna kind of uh, shift our gears to some of the attributes then today of this embarking that we're on. We're embarking in the service of God, we're embarking on this great marvelous work that's been restored. What are the qualifications for us as saints to be able to embark in the service of God, to stand blameless before him at the last day. And we're told yesterday that we have to use all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our strength, right, in order to be blameless. So today we're going to get into the topic of the day, which is uh, listed as part of section four. And that is uh, where they list the different attributes of the saint that we need to remember and last night uh, brother Joe did a good job of listing those out and said we need to add to our faith these things right and we have we have an order here uh, faith virtue knowledge and then we're to add to that temperance and patience and I'm going to be honest with you today the topic that I'm on today is probably the topic that's the most challenging for me personally and that's because, probably a lot like you, patience and temperance is, is something that we struggle with in the natural man, and, and I know that I've struggled with in my life. And if, if you're strong-willed, and uh, like I am, <laughs> this is probably the hardest thing, okay? And so I want to talk a little bit about this today. Uh, first of all, I want to take us to the scripture that was given to us by our camp pastor, and that's in the book of Romans. So I'm going to take us there for this day to start us off with that point, And then we're going to move from there and give you some definitions of temperance and patience. And why those are so important to the latter day work. So let's look then at Romans chapter 5, which is our scripture for the theme today from Brother Harry. Chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. <clears throat> it says not only this talking about faith and, and the, uh, the hope of the glory of God but not only this but we glory in tribulations also knowing that tribulation worketh patience and patience experience and experience hope and hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm going to be honest. When you ask individuals to identify themselves as who they are as part of this great, marvelous work, uh, we're very, very quick to say we're Latter-day Saints. 
We're the chosen people. We're the elect of God. Uh, we're the ones of the covenant. And those are all correct statements. I don't hear very often anyone refer to themselves, yeah, I'm part of the fellowship of his suffering. I, I don't hear anyone self-identify themselves in that term. Because we like the benefits of being part of the gospel, not recognizing that sometimes it says we also have to glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. Right? Patience from experience, and that brings hope. Now, I don't know about you, but I teach high school kids history, government, and uh, I see this on a day-to-day -day basis. A, a lot of people, and you and I are probably right in there with them in different ways, um, really struggle with patience. And uh, we struggle with that because um, the nature of who we are and what we are. I've got two definitions I want to give you. If you want to write these down, you can, about temperance and patience. These two are, uh, uh, they correlate with each other, but they're not exactly the same, okay? Temperance, if you look up temperance, temperance is moderation in indulgence of an appetite, not being excessive, calm and restrained, having self-control. I'll repeat that, temperance. Moderation in indulgence of an appetite, not excessive, calm and restrained, self-control. Now, we normally think of temperance in terms of the moderation side, right? You shouldn't go to extremes. Have you ever noticed that that's exactly what the adversary tries to do in our lives, is take us to the extremes of things? Uh, the whole world is about extremes, by the way, right? Um, we have the Guinness Book of World Records of the most extreme things that can be done so you can get your name in the book, right? Uh, we have um, extremes in terms of who has uh, the biggest uh, franchises, who has the, the best records, uh, and those are all interesting things I know to us in our, in our carnal state, but they are extremes, right? We're always focused on the extremes, and yet temperance means to have moderation of the indulgences of the appetite not to be excessive, right? Have you ever heard someone say too much of a good thing can be bad? Okay. So when we fell in the beginning, it says when man fell, he became carnal, sensual, and devilish. Okay. Carnal meaning of the flesh, sensual meaning focused on the senses, and devilish in terms of our thought process. Right? of things that we want, that are devilish in nature, conniving, manipulative. That's what happened when man fell. These things come out very strongly in our characteristics as human beings, and yet these are the very things that as Latter-day Saints were told that we must have discipline over, control over, keep in check, not to go to excesses, Right? God gave us our senses, right, to use, but to use in proper ways, right? And uh, this is a difficult thing because today the world is pushing everything to the extremes in opposite of temperance, okay? The other word I want to give you a definition of is patience. And I want to give you a scripture first before I give you the definition. So I want to turn to James, the fifth chapter. This is a familiar scripture, probably most of you are familiar with this. James, the fifth chapter, verses 7 through 11. <clears throat> this is James exhorting us, right, to have this, the saints to have the patience that's talked about in section 4 to be part of the marvelous work. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and the latter rain. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Take my brethren the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord 
for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. And ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, and the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Now that scripture has a lot of things packed into that. Okay? James is referencing here specifically the, uh, not unlike us, the, the desires of the saints in that day for the return and coming of the Lord, just like we are today. And he's telling them that they need to exercise patience and make sure that they establish their hearts first. That this patience, right, is what they used in ancient days, just like Job had, and that they should not grudge one against another, lest they be condemned. Now, this patience thing is the hardest thing, I think, for us as saints, but I think it's the highest mark to tell where you're at spiritually. Okay? Let me give you the definition of patience. There's the thing about it in the Greek, which the New Testament, by the way, was written in, there are three references here. All of them use the same type of word, but notice they're split out here. You have patience, perseverance, and endurance. And all of them uh, are slightly different in their definitions. Okay? And if you'll notice, patience is always closely connected anywhere in Scripture. Just pay attention to this when you read your Scriptures. Patience is always very closely connected to the preparation of the coming of the Lord. A lot of scriptures you say, just like this one was, connected to the coming of the Lord, be patient. You must have patience. Okay? So here is uh, the three definitions. I'll take it in reverse order here. Endurance is one of the Greek words that's connected to patience, but it's different. Endurance simply means to remain under and holding out against pressure. Endure to the end. Right? Remain under... And hold out against pressures. Endure. Perseverance is a second one that ties to this Greek word. It means persistently doing something over and over and over. Okay? And not being, not failing in it. Doing it over and over and over. We're told to pray always. We're told to fast and pray. We're told to study, right? Perseverance in those things, right? That's exercising a form of patience, but it's specifically referenced perseverance. And then we have patience itself. And patience, the definition is being passive, and this is the word I love the most, I want to hit most darn, and yielding. Passive and yielding. This is what we don't do very well in. Okay, and I'm going to speak specifically related to the yielding part of this. Okay. James here referenced something specifically that I think is a high calling of Latter-day Saints, that we grudge not one against another, lest you be condemned. What does that mean to grudge one against another? Does that simply mean that you disagree? It's not what really it's referencing there. Can't let it go, okay? Brother Joe said can't let it go. Do you ever... And you don't have to raise your hand on this. I'm not going to embarrass you. But do you ever see faults in another person and you grudge against them? Because, like, man, they are really weak in that area. Okay? And you hold a grudge. Maybe it's not even a real noticeable one. Maybe it's just more of a subconscious type thing. Okay? This is a real issue when it comes to this exercising of patience and temperance, okay? Patience is always, I said, cl closely connected to the, the preparation for the coming of the Lord. It's mentioned in section four. It's mentioned here in James, directly connected to the end work and the coming of the Lord. It's mentioned in several other scriptures, again, loosely connected to preparations for the coming of, of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's way, and we're going to emphasize this to you, God's way and throughout the scriptures, if you look, look at the scriptures, is not so much about struggling, but about yielding. Now, we read a lot about struggling because people struggle, and we struggle, but that's really not what God's righteousness is about. It's not so much about struggling as it is about yielding. Yielding to 
the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, it says in the Book of Mormon, right? You yield to that spirit, you list to obey, right? So you can, you can yield to the wrong spirits and the wrong things, right? Or you can yield to the Holy Spirit. And I'm talking about yielding here to the Holy Spirit. That's what the righteousness of God really is about, is yielding to the Holy Spirit. Having patience and possessing your souls with temperance, which means restrain, calm, and self-control in the Spirit, right? Romans were told, right, that the, the kingdom comes not by sight or observation, but, but by what? How's the kingdom come? In Romans, by much power and assurance, and in the Holy Ghost, right? So, an exercise in righteousness is the idea of yielding ourselves to the Holy Spirit and exercising temperance and patience, which is added to our faith, right? These are things that are added to the faith that we already have. I presume you have faith, or you wouldn't be here this morning, at least to whatever degree, right? Because faith is action, and you took actions to come to hear the word of the Lord, to pray with the saints, to be with the saints, to learn more of his ways, hopefully to grow closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. So you've exercised a certain amount of faith, but do we have to add to our faith temperance and patience? And that's hard, especially for us. We know that after we do all that we can do, right, we're commanded to do certain things, pray always study our scriptures, meet often with the saints. We're told to serve each other, right? And defer to our brethren. After all those things we're commanded to do, we ultimately come to some point, we always have to then yield to him to finish it. And this is where we get ourselves in trouble. We think we can finish whatever we're doing on our own. And we can't. It says he is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is the beginning and he is the end. He is the alpha and he is the omega. So we start and we do the things, hopefully, that we're being commanded to do, but there will always come to that point somewhere in that work where you're going to have to yield for him to finish it. And for us, that's the difficult part because we want to take it, we want to run with it because look what I've done up to this point. And we have that mindset of the world, it's my work. And yet we know that's really not true based on scripture, right? It says it is his work. It is his glory. It is his kingdom, right? And he just allows us to be a part of that privilege to share in that. Now, it doesn't mean not to have willpower. I, I don't want us to get confused about this and say, oh, well, if you got willpower, that's a bad thing. That's not, that's not what this is saying at all in scripture, right? The Lord has given you your agency and will to choose. He's given you intelligence in the day he created you and the agency to use that intelligence. It's not about not having willpower. It's about using that willpower, right, differently than you've ever used it before. And what I mean by differently, it means using your willpower not to try to do it yourself, but to yield to the greater movement of his spirit. Now, if we're carnal, central, and devilish because of the fall, we tend to focus on those things in our lives. We tend to focus on, right? Most of the time, if I ask somebody how they're doing, what's the first response you get from someone if you just ask a general question? Hey, how are you doing? And you'll get maybe a generic answer, I'm doing fine. Or if they do say anything, they usually go immediately to things about their job, their family, they talk about uh, things maybe happening in their health, all right? All legitimate things, right? But the focus tends to always be on the carnal, central, and, and yourself, right? I don't hear anybody saying, well, here's what uh, the Lord's done in my life, and, and right? We don't usually start off with that because that's not our mindset. And it's a subtle thing, but it tells us a lot about how we think, right, in our day-to-day -day lives. So if you look, a mark of spiritual maturity is when we know how to yield at the appropriate times. Christ is the best example of this, right? He yielded always at the appropriate times. He yielded to his father, right? He could have, how many times did Christ have the opportunity to demonstrate his power among people 
could have every place he went to, but he always refrained. He used self-control, restraint, and only did the things he says that the Father hath commanded me to do. He yielded always to his Father. Even though he had this power to do anything and everything, right? Christ is the best example of power under total control. Temperance. Saints have to, we're, we're said we're the followers of Christ. We're taking upon us the name of Christ. We want to be like Christ. If we're going to be like Christ, you may have the power to do something, but you have to know when and how and where to use it, and you have to yield to the Spirit in doing so. Okay? Now, there comes a point when you can do no more, and the question is, do we know how to yield? Do you get to that wall in your life, you hit that brick wall, and instead of just trying to bulldoze through it, you stop and say, Lord, what is your plan? What would you have me do? Now, I'm not saying you get on your knees and you say, Lord, this is what I want to do. Help me to find a way to do it. That's really not yielding, is it? That's kind of telling the Lord, uh, I want to go this direction and help me get there, doing it my way. But honestly yielding and saying, what is your plan? What would you have me to do? Open the doors of whatever you would have. And then being okay, and this is the tough part, because sometimes we'll even go that far and ask, and then we immediately go ahead and do our own thing anyway. Anybody guilty of that? Okay. <laughs> Some of you are going, oh, don't even go there. Okay. I think we've all been there at some time, right? Many, multiple times. And this is a, a very difficult thing in our human nature, right? This is what it says, a natural man is an enemy to God and has been since the beginning because it's opposite of the characteristics of Christ. Christ had all the power, but he was completely under control and submission and yielding to the Father. The dynamics of that, right? How many times do the scriptures use these dichotomies that are there, this, this, uh, this uh, strange correlation that we don't really understand? Such as, right, he who be the greatest among you, let him be the servant of all. Well, that's not what the world teaches. If you're the greatest, you should be in charge. That's opposite of natural man, right? Or the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. It doesn't make sense to us in our normal everyday thinking, but the reality is that's the way the Lord works. There are a lot of things that we have in scripture that teach us about this idea of yielding, okay? It takes some of us with strong powers to get to the point, what is your solution, God? What do you want us to do? And what I've come to find out in my life, and I can only speak for myself, and probably you have in yours as well, as the answer God sometimes gives or happens because of turning it over to him is completely different than anything I ever would have thought of. And it's always better. It's always better. Okay? So let me, let me take you to a scripture. Let's look at Romans, the 15th chapter. And I'm looking at particularly verses uh, 1 through 3 here. <clears throat> this is the mark of a spiritually mature Latter-day Saint. This is one who follows the ways of Christ, the spirit of Christ. Verse 1 through 3. We then that are strong, if you think you're strong, then you ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. What does the word edification mean, by the way? If you edify, you build up, right? You support and build up, edify. So you're going to please your neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. 
So Christ himself, right, exercised this idea of he who is the greatest among you, let him be the servant of all. He bore the infirmities of the weak. And this is what it gets to what James was saying, grudge not your fellow man. It is very tempting for us, and this is a, a sin and a danger always, that when we gain a little knowledge, a little insight, or we're doing a few things right, and I'm going to emphasize the word a few things, that we then think, look at what we're doing. This is good. And we start to take a look at ourselves and we forget about the fact that if you are strong in an area, and maybe you are, maybe there are certain gifts that you have that you've been exercising, that your responsibility is to bear the infirmities of the weak and not please ourselves. That is hard. Because that's not natural. Okay? I know a patriarchal blessing that says when you worship in the congregations that you're in, says, and you see them struggling, you're to reach out in prayer on their behalf that they might have, and I'm paraphrasing, that they might experience the true essence of worship. That's an example of this scripture right here. That if you know and understand worship and you see people struggling, you don't turn and grudge them for it, but you yield to the spirit which causes you to bear their infirmities and you pray to lift them up that they might have that experience. Too often we simply say, they don't get it, and we, that's, that's where we leave it, right? That is not the spirit of Christ, nor is it yielding and exercising patience in terms of what the scriptures are saying here. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. Now think about what Christ did at the cross, because the cross is the best example of the strongest bearing the infirmities of all of us, the weak, right? Imagine if Christ said, none of you guys get this. I'm going off and I'm doing my own thing. And he didn't yield. And he didn't bear the infirmities of all of us. Where would we be? No hope. We would be sentenced to death eternally, separation from God. And there will be no opportunities for us ever to have that experience of joy and peace and the things of the Spirit. Because Christ bore our infirmities and bore our sin, right? He edified and built up the household of God. This is really important for us as saints to understand that we are to be like Christ, that we are to bear infirmities, we are help the weak. We are to give to the poor, and we are to help them not just give in a sense, but to give in terms of teaching too, right? Of how, and, and to bring a, a, a communion of the body of Christ. This is the opposite, by the way, in case you haven't figured this out. This is the opposite of everything we're told in the world today. That only the strong shall survive, right? Survival of the fittest. We see this on all kinds of shows that re-emphasize this. If you've seen uh, um, where they kick people off the island, if you're not strong, you get kicked off, you're gone, right? There's a lot of emphasizing of this stuff as you see in everything in the world. But the reality of it is, is the opposite. Brother Brian, we'll get you, we'll get you a mic here so they can hear you. There's a uh, scripture in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 83. I don't know if you're going to read this. Go ahead. But it goes right along with yeah. what you're saying. It's speaking of the men who would prosecute the missionary work, who would go out and preach the gospel. Yep. And it's this very same principle uh, in 19b. It says, And if any man among you be strong in the spirit, let him take with him he that is weak, that he may be edified in all meekness, that he may become strong also. Absolutely. That admonition that was given to the priesthood. There's the principle being fulfilled through priesthood and the ministry. Correct. Uh, Josiah, right over here. Section 8319B. Yeah. 8319B. Very good. 
It does require great spiritual strength to bear the weaknesses of others. If you find someone who does this, you have a person who is maturing spiritually. That is a mark of spiritual growth. And we have a lot of uh, scripture, right? The one we quote most often, right? Though I can prophesy, right, and do all these things and do miracles, have I not charity, I am what? Nothing. So over and over you see this in scripture. The mark spiritually of spiritual maturity in one who is more growing in Christ is one who is willing to yield, who are bearing the infirmities of others and those who are weak, right, that they might make them strong. And to be your brother's keeper, right? Isn't that really kind of the fundamental principles of Zion the ba at the base root there in terms of, right, how that works? We've really messed this up in the world. And what we have done is we've taken away the opportunities, and I say we, the world, which we're a part of, and Satan has really done a, a good number here. And this, this two quotes I'm going to give you comes from probably the most unlikely of sources to demonstrate this idea of robbing people the opportunity to help others. The two quotes I'm going to give you here might surprise you where it comes from, and I won't tell you until after the quotes and see if you can guess where it comes from, okay? The governmentalization of charity affects not just the donor, but also the recipient. What was once asked as a favor is now demanded as an entitlement. The transformation of charity into legal entitlement has produced donors without love and recipients without gratitude. Surely Christ's special love for the poor was attributable to one quality that they possessed in abundance, meekness and humility. It is humbling to be the object of charity. And the second quote from the same person, Christ's message, the Christian message as I understand it, is not the need to eliminate hunger or misery or misfortune, but rather the need for each individual to love and help the hungry, the miserable, and the unfortunate. Indeed, the argument can be made that far from doing Christ's work, state provision of welfare positively impedes Christ's work to the extent that the state takes upon it itself one of the corporal works of mercy that could and would have been undertaken privately by people and it deprives individuals of the opportunity for sanctification and deprives the body of Christ of an occasion for the interchange of love among its members. Those are two powerful quotes. Anybody want to take a stab who said those two quotes, and they're not a member of the church. U.S. Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. Years ago, he marked the fact that it is important for Christianity to thrive, that the opportunity for love and, and yielding to your fellow man and bearing their burdens is a critical aspect. He says, because if we turn it into something that's just simply legally done by the state, it produces donors without love and recipients without gratitude. I love that quote. It deprives the body of Christ of an occasion to interchange of love and of sanctification. Now there's someone who gets it. That gets the nature of Christianity, right? Yeah, it also takes away agency. You're, you're correct. That's exactly right, right? So that's why in Zion there will be no poor among them because there will be the desire of all to reach out to their fellow man. And I'm not talking just in physical things, but also there will be no poor in spirit. Both, right? Not just physical. We always go to the physical in our minds, right? The temporal things. But also in spirit. So when you take that, those quotes from Antonin Scalia and you couple it with the things that we've read in the scriptures, we see how important it is, this scripture out of Romans, that we bear the infirmities of others and, and the weaknesses of others. And we then have people who un, will be able to empathize with the needs of their fellow man. 
Now, I want to shift slightly. I want to take that thought and I want to move to a, a thought that connects with this. If you'll turn first to Matthew 16, this is actually found in two spots, and it's a very familiar scripture to you. Matthew 16. Verses 25 and 26. This is what Jesus was saying when he was preaching and teaching. In verse 25 it says, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And now for a man, here's the definition of how to do that, right? And now for a man to take up his cross is to deny himself of all ungodliness and every worldly lust and keep my commandments. So what you find in there, you find the yielding by keeping the commandments, denying yourself of every worldly lust, there's your temperance, right? And denying of all ungodliness. That's what taking up the cross of Jesus is, right? By definition here. Now, the reason why I'm going to shift to this second uh, scripture, this does a good job of telling us what taking up your cross is, but there's one key word left out of this particular scripture that's mentioned in Luke of the same scripture, and one key word. So you can tie this together. It's also the same scripture with one key note exception is found in Luke 9. And I want to get to that because it uses this word and it's so important for us to understand. In Luke 9, and I'm looking at verses 23 and 24. And he said unto them, this is Jesus again, and he said unto them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's not used in Matthew, the word daily. It's emphasized here in Luke that to do those things, you have to do it every single day. It's not just something you do monthly, yearly, even weekly. Daily, you must take up your cross and follow me. So Luke adds that word daily, which I think is so critical. I have noticed in my life that the, the things, uh, most of the things that I've found to be acceptable to God started by me not pleasing myself. In other words, using self-discipline. Doing things that maybe I otherwise wouldn't do, but I knew I should do, either because the Lord had commanded it, it I knew that was part of my responsibilities. Um, to deny yourself is to say no to yourself. Now, you would think that would be easy. <laughs> but it's the hardest thing to do. I've seen parents who have trouble saying no to their children. I've had grandparents that even have a harder time saying no to their children and grandchildren. And guess what? It's hard for us to say no to ourselves. Self-denial, why? Because we want it, we desire it. How do you get a person to stop going after something that they want so badly themselves using self-restraint. There's only one way that can happen and that's by the power of Christ. Because if left to ourselves, we've already determined it's good because we desire it. It's like the tree in the garden, right? We saw the, we saw the fruit, we thought it was good, we're gonna go ahead and eat. Even though there was a commandment not to, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We do the same thing every single day in our lives. We see things we desire, right? We're carnal, sensual, and devilish. We think of the flesh and the appetites of the flesh. We see things with our eyes. We hear things. We smell things. We want things. And devilishly, we manipulate it so we can get it. We do that every day. So to deny ourselves, to reverse the carnal, the sensual, and the devilish, means that we have to be spiritual, not carnal, right? We have to have our spiritual eyes open, our spiritual senses, our spiritual ears open to the voice of the Lord and hear it. And we have to yield, not try to manipulate, but yield to the Lord. That's how it's reversed. So to deny yourself daily is a task that's given every one of us. 
So there's a quote. I love this, this guy. I don't know where I got it from. I remember writing this down, and he makes this comment about your cross. Your cross will be where your will and the will of God intersect. I think of the cross up here, right, on the wall. Your cross will always be where your will and the will of God intersect. It is the place where we're to crucify the flesh. Just as Christ crucified the flesh to the cross, it is the place where we're to crucify the carnal nature of what and who we are. Every good thing that's ever happened in my life usually stemmed from yielding something that I originally didn't want to do but yielding to God. Best example is meeting my wife. I've shared this testimony already here, so I won't share the whole thing again. But when I finally yielded and said, Lord, this is your work. You're going to have to find the person you want. When I finally gave it to him and truly gave it, not just please help me, but gave it up and said it is all yours. That's when God could actually start to begin to work in my life and make it happen. The day of our surrender is the day of God's power. By yielding to his spirit and what he has for us. No one, no one in here and not even the Lord will take your will from you. It is all yours. That's part of agency. That's what Sister Shrunk was talking about, your agency. No one will take it from you and not even the Lord. It is yours to willingly lay down and give. If you want. But you have to willingly lay it down as Christ did. Do you ever look at laying down your will as an opportunity and not a disaster? <laughs> it's all in the perspective, right? How often do we look at something and say, can't believe I can't do what I want to do and we, we, oh, we fight against it instead of saying this is a great opportunity to lay this down and see what God has in store fundamental different perspective to the exact same problem right it depends how you look at it it depends what kind of spirit you're in are you looking at it from the carnal mind or are you looking at it from the spiritual side I was <laughs> I'll be honest with you, I was a little reluctant to talk about this in class today because I know that I will have in the next few days the opportunity to practice what I've taught you today. And I know it's coming. And it's going to come in the next couple of days, I'm sure, in whatever forms. And so you hesitate a little bit, but it's true, right? Brother Carnahan back there. What you're talking about reminds me of uh, Abraham and Sarah. They had the promise of a child. Yeah. And they tried to force God's hand with Ishmael yeah. and then they were patiently waited until they received that promise and then God further tested him by saying offer your son to me on and which was of course a type of Christ but absolutely I'm glad you brought that up I actually had that as one of my examples so since you brought it up let's go ahead and turn to that of how do we how do we yield and what happens if we don't yield let's look at that what he brought up here um, um, let me go just a second here. I have my. I got several examples I want to bring up here, but I'm going to bring that one up first since you talked about it. Uh, Genesis 22. Let's turn to Genesis 22. How do we yield, and what happens if we don't yield? If we don't exercise patience, which remember, patience is yielding. That's one of the key definitions. We know the story, at least I think we probably do, about Abraham and Sarah. We know that Abraham was promised that he would uh, be given a child. Sarah uh, and he were having trouble uh, having, having that child that was promised. And unfortunately, they, they didn't exercise patience. They didn't yield to what the Lord had said. What did uh, Sarah and Abraham go ahead and try to do? All right. Sarah says, I know how we'll handle this if this is something that's mine. We'll, we'll let the handmaiden, right? You can have a child by my handmaiden, which was custom in that day. And you can have a child by, by her. Okay? Now, that's not what God said, right? He promised Abraham and Sarah that they would have a child, but they tried to take it in their own hands, right? 
They didn't yield in patience to what the Lord was going to do in time. And of course, along comes Ishmael. And who is Ishmael today? All right, the Arabs, right? The Arab nations are the descendants of Ishmael, thanks to Hagar, right? And what kind of a mess did Abraham and Sarah <laughs> create for us today by having Ishmael before the promised one came, as the Lord said, right, through Isaac, the covenant would come through Isaac, who are the descendants, of course, of the Jewish nation today, right? What kind of situation did that, did that bring about that if there was ever a good example of how bad things could get messed up if you don't yield to the Lord and how it can affect generations down the road, this is a really good example of that, right? Brother Eric. Uh, to, to go along with that um, in verse 2 here, which maybe you're going to read, um, the Lord says to Abraham, says, take Isaac, uh, thine only son. Mm -hmm. And so the Lord's just kind of ignoring Ishmael completely. Yeah. He says, Isaac's your son. That's right. That's right. Because that was the one of the promise through the, the lineage line that the Lord had planned all along, right? Ishmael was man's doing. Isaac was the one of the Lord. Barb? You reminded us in class at Rob about the fact that, or Carl did, that a lot of the problems in the world today are brought about by things like the Arabs believe that Ishmael was the first child, therefore right. he was the inheritor, and instead Isaac inherited, therefore they are trying to get back what was taken away from them. Yeah. Yeah, that, and it's created the situations today. And the only reason I bring this up is, is a, a very notable example of taking things into your own hands, of not yielding to what the Lord had already told them and trying to make it happen on their own, right? And we do this a lot in our lives. You know, it may, I, I got to be careful when I say this, it may not have the repercussions this one did, but I guarantee there are major repercussions that come when we take things into our own hands that affect generations down the road, sometimes in our own families. Brother Reggie. Basically what we're talking about here is God has given us a promise. Zion's, Zion's another good example. Yep. And what we don't understand is his parameters because of not understanding his knowledge. So. In the process of doing that, we know there is a promise, and we're thinking, okay, we've got to help this promise along somehow. So we develop this, the parameters instead of letting God yep. work within his parameters, which his parameters, there's no end to his parameters. Right. And he can see everything, right? We only see in part. And you, this is why the saints have to exercise patience in yielding. We have to. We need to be doing all that we know we should be doing, so that doesn't mean do nothing, but it also means that make sure that we do what we can do and then we leave the rest to the Lord, right? When he says in section 102, I will fight the battles of Zion, right? And that clearly lays it out. He will fight that battle. Now, we try to take that up and fight that battle all the time, but he will fight the battles of Zion. We're to get our own homes in order, our own lives in order to, right? help the poor and the needy, to minister to those who are in need, right? And do those things that we know we should be doing and serving um, and praying and fasting and all those other things that we have. Taking up our cross daily while he is making the bigger picture happen. What's interesting to me about this is it, it doesn't, <laughs> if you need, <laughs> I wrote this down, if you think you need to do something to help God, then God help you, okay? If you think you need to do something to help God, then God help you. Because God doesn't need help. He needs obedience. He needs people who are humble and willing and full of love and yielding, right? The things we think are good and right end up becoming the biggest disasters. I can tell you about that in my life personally. The things that I took into my own hands were the times I had the hardest times in my life because I didn't yield. And waiting is sometimes the biggest test of all. We're in a world that was very, is very active. 
And when it says to be still and know that I am God, we have a hard time being still and waiting upon the voice of the Lord to answer us. And sometimes that's the biggest test. I mean, it's one of those things where it's almost we'll do the opposite. If the Lord tells us to climb the mountain, we'll sit there at the bottom and wait. If he tells us to wait at the bottom of the mountain, we'll start climbing, right? We want to do what we want to do when we want to do it. And yet he has a more excellent way, right, at times for us. So here's the thing um, I want to get here of Genesis 22. I want to take this a step further now with Isaac. Now, Isaac was, you know, we talked about the, the taking that in his own hands. You think Abraham learns the lesson from Abraham of chapter 12 is not the same Abraham in chapter 22. It's not. He's not. In chapter 22, this is specifically, and this is where we're getting there where Brother Eric read, uh, Abraham was told that he was to uh, uh, take thy only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, right, thy only son, and get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains of which I will tell thee. Now, I don't know about you. This has always been one of the greatest struggle stories for me growing up is to be willing to do that. Take your only son that I promised you, the one that was such a blessing that you waited so long for, and now I'm going to ask you to make an offering of your son on Mount Moriah. Your only son, the chosen one, right? From the lineage line. And Abraham said unto right, his young men, in verse 6, Abide you here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come to you again. Now, I love that response. I believe Abraham knew that God had the power to raise up his son, even if he required his life to raise him up. Because what he says here, you wait here and, and we'll go yonder worship and we come to you again. I believe here because of that statement, Abraham had a faith in the power of the resurrection of what Christ would do, what Christ could do. And he had such faith exercise here. He yielded to what would be against our better judgment, I'm sure. Right? I don't know any of us in here who would probably be just gung-ho about taking our only son and offering that as a sacrifice. That son. Now, I want you to think about the implications here. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering... And he laid it upon his back, which is also symbolic of the laying of the wood on the back of Christ, right? And he took the fire in his hand and a knife and Isaac his son, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham and his father and said, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And I love the response of Abraham. He said, Behold, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. Never a truer statement was ever made. God did provide a lamb for the burnt offering. He provided his son. Abraham spoke the truth here. Abraham acted in faith, and he added to that faith, patience and yielding. So they went both of them together, and they came to the place of which God had told them. And Abraham built an altar there, laid the wood in order, bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham said, Here am I. And the angel said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do anything unto him. For now I know that thou hearest, fearest God seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only Isaac, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind a thicket there was a ram caught in the horns, thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. This is a beautiful, beautiful example of yielding. And Abraham learned the lesson from Ishmael. Because look what he did with Isaac. If 
he had held on to Isaac, as you and I probably would have. You can't take my son. This is my only son. I'll do anything else but not this. That's probably what we would have responded if we weren't spiritually minded. If he had held on to Isaac, think about this, all he would have had was Isaac. But because he was willing to give and yield to the Lord of something so precious in Isaac, he not only had Isaac, but he had the greater promises. And we know that because later on it tells us down here, right, that after that he says, I will make a multitude of nations of thee. Thy children shall be as the sands of the sea and like the stars in heaven. Because you did not deny your one son, I'm going to make multitudes of nations come from thee. Thy seed will be as the sands of the sea, right? He blessed Abraham in the very area he was willing to yield in multiple folds. If he had just held on to Isaac, all he would have had was Isaac. But because he was willing to yield, if need be, to give Isaac up, all these generations... We're going to be blessed of his posterity following that. Brother Mike. I think as I went read through this with you, I saw here in, in, in verse 8, uh, Isaac cried out to his father. And he said, said, my father, with an exclamation point. And, and Abraham gives him the reassuring, the reassuring uh, statement. He, he says, he said, here am I, my son. And then when you go on down to, to 13, and, and the Lord cried out to Abraham and said, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham answered and with the same response, here am I. Here am I. And so yeah. he reassured both Isaac, I'm here to protect you. I'm here to take care of you. Don't worry about this. This is okay. I'll take care of it. The Lord will take care of all of this. And then he answered the Lord, here am I. Now, what would you like for me to do? Absolutely. That's yielding. That's yielding right there. Brother Eric? Uh, this just brought to my mind, in the book of Hebrews, Paul is talking about faith. And he makes this statement, and, it, and now this makes much more sense, that he says, Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is what he's talking about. Yeah. He's talking right. about this act Yep. that he did it wasn't just that he believed right but, but he he actually followed through with it faith is action right he followed through with it and the look at the blessing i want to make sure you understand the blessing in verse 20 and thus saith the lord this is to abraham i have sworn by myself that because thou hast done this thing he swears to himself there's no greater power that right he swore unto himself he is author creator of the universe right I've sworn unto myself that because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only Isaac upon from me, that in blessing I will bless thee, in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. You see how important it is to obey and to yield? Because of this act of faith, because of this yielding of patience, all of this blessing is going to take place. And not only for his posterity, but through his posterity, right, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And that was true because through his posterity come the Christ. All the nations of the earth were blessed through that. This is the beautiful part about yielding. We don't see it until after. We want to understand first, but we can't understand first until we've been obedient first. After obedience comes the understanding, not the other way around in our lives. And that's why yielding is, is difficult, but so important that we do to the voice of the Lord. Reggie? If I might say it this way, Adam set the stage for this. When the angel came to him and said, after his sin, yeah. God had commanded him. And the angel said, why do you do this? I know not except God has commanded me. And this has been the same response that God has sought from each one of us yep. all along. Once we have sinned and we come back to him, why do you do this? I know not except that God has commanded me. An yep. exercise of faith, yep. an exercise of obedience. And it comes back to what I say, take up your cross daily and follow me. Where your will crosses the will of God, right where that intersects, 
That's where you're going to have to lay down, right, your will. That's where the crucifixion happens every day in our lives, right? Uh, Brother Everett here. I don't know, I don't know if it's mentioned in Genesis, but I, in a book from his, a Bible handbook, that's the very place where Christ was crucified, where God yielded up his son. Yeah, he did. Before we break, I want to give you another scripture and another point here before we take a small break. Uh, look at, let's turn to 1 Corinthians. This is, this is really important. The natural man is opposed to God, and we're going to see how here in 1 Corinthians. And like I said, I'm speaking, most of what I'm sharing today is from my personal experience. Uh, I, I'm, I'm being honest. This is one of the most difficult things, I think, in my life uh, to yield. And so um, when I'm saying all this, I, I hope you understand that. Uh, 1 Corinthians, the first chapter. All right, verses 25 through 29. <clears throat> uh, let me start with actually verse uh, 23. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews, it is a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks it's foolishness. But unto them who believe, both Jew and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, and not many mighty, not many noble, are chosen. For God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are mighty, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Now, that scripture is filled <laughs> with the fact of the opposite of everything that we think today, right? We think we're, we're pretty wise individuals, right? We've got all this technology today, right? <clears throat> Where does all that come from? It's the intelligence of God given to man, right? And we think we're wise because we do these things and stuff, but there is a weakness, we're told in this scripture, that comes from God that is stronger than any strength that we have. Think about that. There is a, a weakness that comes from God that is stronger than any strength that you and I individually or collectively have. There is a foolishness that comes from God that is wiser than any wisdom that we think we have. And the one thing in which weakness and foolishness found their full expression was at the cross. I know people thought Jesus was foolish. He was weak. They thought, it's over. He was the promised Messiah. Now what are we going to do? They thought it was foolishness that he went to the cross and died. They thought it was weakness. And in reality, it was just the opposite. This is the problem with the thinking of man. The foolishness of God is greater than any wisdom man has. And the weakness of God is greater than any strength that we think we have. God at the cross triumphed over all strength and wisdom of the world using the weak and foolish things by man's standards. God is asking us to learn that kind of weakness and that kind of foolishness. He wants us to exercise that same thinking spiritually. Out of the cross comes the greatest glory and by man's standards, it was foolishness and weakness. The Greeks thought it was foolishness. Jews, it was a stumbling block. But to those who know the power of God, found in Christ, recognized that it was the greatest thing that ever happened to mankind. So I want you to think about that today when we're talking about yielding to God. Okay, He has a foolishness, if we want to call it that that is greater than any wisdom of man, and he has a weakness that is greater than any strength of man. And we see this over and over in testimonies. You read testimonies of 
Edmund C. Briggs, J.J. Cornish, Arthur Oakman. All the times there are things that they go opposite of the way man would think so that the power of God might be demonstrated and that no flesh could glory in his presence. It's not about you and it's not about me. It's about him. We'll stop here, take a short break, we turn the tape over, we need to go to the bathroom, get a drink, whatever, stretch a little bit, and then we'll come back and finish up. We'll give about five, seven minutes, something like that, and we'll come back and finish up today. <laughs>